Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Okay, looks like we are live, and I'm, I know I'm not the only one incredibly excited for this interview. We've got an awesome guest with us tonight, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. He is an, an absolute warrior uh, for the faith and for young earth creation. I've been reading Dr. Sarfati's books, articles, as well as watching his presentations and lectures for years. As a matter of fact, his books, Refuting Evolution and The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Refuting Dawkins on Evolution were two of my very first books on young earth creation. Uh, I'm going to show them on the screen here real quick for people, Dr. Sarfati. Um, Refuting Dawkins, Refuting Evolution. Um, after reading these books, Dr. Sarfati, uh, Refuting Dawkins, um, poor Dawkins probably still hasn't recovered from that one. Hmm. Now, now to the audience, I can't wait for you guys to hear all the overwhelming evidence for biblical creation. And I want to thank Dr. Sarfati for being generous enough by giving us his time for today. I really, really appreciate it. And I appreciate all the work that you've done uh, in defending the truth, Dr. Sarfati. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Um, I'm going to tell the audience real quick uh, just why we're so excited for this. So we're going to be touching on some many very important topics. A few of the topics, guys, we're going to be discussing today include biblical compromise and why we can trust the Bible and why the Bible is consistent with science. We're also going to be discussing the numerous fatal problems with naturalistic origin of life scenarios in abiogenesis. And of course, one of our favorite topics, evidence for a young world, evidence for Noah's flood, and also, of course, refuting the critics' arguments when it comes to evolution and their deep time assumptions. Uh, I will say we are taking uh, questions from the audience. Therefore, please make sure you are tagging me with your questions. We want to make this interactive. Um, but anyways, enough for me. I'm going to hand it over to uh, Ra Matt just for a second for a brief introduction of Dr. Sarfati, and then we're just going to get right into the interview. So, uh, Matt, over to you. All right. Um, yeah, again, thanks, Dr. Sarfati, uh, for giving us time today for the interview. We're all big fans of your work here, obviously, and defense of the faith. But correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, but you've studied science at the Victoria University of Wellington and have obtained your bachelor's in science with honors, and it's in chemistry. You have two physics papers that are subtitled Nuclear and Condensed Matter Physics. Yep. And uh, you have a PhD in chemistry, which was awarded for your knowledge in spectroscopy. And uh, has been you have co-authored papers in mainstream science journals and in high-temperature superconductors and selenium-containing rings in cage-shaped molecules. <laughs> yeah, helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, you've also co-authored papers on high-temperature uh, superconductors that have been published in Nature when you were just mm -hmm. 20 years old. Yeah, some yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Sofadi, we want to hand it over to you now for any brief introductions from you that you might want to give that I might have missed. Or, and oh, well, uh, I guess it doesn't take long for you guys to realize I'm not from this country originally. Uh, I'm uh, from New Zealand and Australia originally. I've, I've probably got a hybrid accent of Australian and New Zealand English. Uh, these are called non-rhotic dialects. We only pronounce R before a vowel sound, not at the end of a, of a syllable. That's one distinction from Canadian and American English. Yeah, I am a PhD scientist. I'm a real scientist who's published in secular scientific journals. I mean, even though evolutionists say people like me don't exist, they don't believe any real scientists and believe uh, in creation, which, of course, have been used to the great founders of modern science. I mean, you think of Kepler and Newton and Faraday and Maxwell, who are very devout Bible believers, even devout by the standards of their own day as Bible believers. Uh, so if you, if creatures can't be science, then we throw away all of physics and astronomy and, and electromagnetism if you want to do that. Uh, they don't want to do that somehow. Um, I live in the States now. I became a U.S. citizen last year, so I may even have three passports now. Uh, so I've been here for, for 10 years, and one reason my wife and I moved over here is so we've got two granddaughters here now. So, of course, you want to be closer to the grandkids, and it's much easier to drive 500 miles to Florida than it is to fly 9,000 miles from Brisbane, Australia. Right. Yeah, no, that's awesome, Dr. Sarfati. Well, uh, yeah, we're excited. Great introduction. Um, our audience is excited as well. So why don't we just get right into it? Um, as I know, everybody's excited to get into the evidence. So, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Sarfati, you've written an extensive book on the topic of biblical compromise. Now, yes. the, the book um, is titled Refuting Compromise, correct? That's the, right, that's the one, yes. Yeah, so we hear all sorts of interpretations of Genesis that attempt to force fit billions of years in universal common ancestry into the scriptures. That's Is there any validity to these positions and the arguments employed by biblical compromisers? Well, first of all, I want to say that the this issue is quite different from a lot of other debates that real Christians are going to have about whether baptism is for adults or for for babies or the former church government or the millennium, because all those debates presuppose that the Bible is your final authority, and we're going to try to work out what this authority means. But when it comes to origin, yeah, the issue here is whether the Bible is your final authority or must we go to secular science uh, in practice to overrule what the Bible says. So it's actually a, a debate that's different in kind and not in just in degree from all these other debates that we hear about. Because make no mistake, this is an issue of authority. If you have the Bible alone, you're not going to get anything but six ordinary days and 6,000 years ago. It's only by bringing outside ideas into the uh, your thinking that you get the millions of years, uh, common ancestry, evolution. Uh, you can't read those from Scripture. Clearly, they're reading it into Scripture. So therefore, something else is their authority and not the Bible. And then we have the issue of perspicuity of Scripture. I mean, God wrote Scripture so we can understand it. But how, how come the idea of long ages and evolution was not read into the Bible until about the... 19th century when these ideas became popular in secular science no one saw millions of years in the bible until the 19th century but if it was clearly taught in the text how come no one ever saw it and i document that in chapter three of refuting compromise how the consistent teaching church fathers reformers thomas aquinas all these people they they understood six literal days they understood the world was less than six thousand years old in the time that by the time they wrote 
That's one, one big thing. Well, that's a, a great point, Dr. Sarfati. I've personally heard many times, I don't know if this is a new argument they're now pulling out, and it just comes to mind based on what you said, you know, why haven't people seen this for, mm -hmm. for thousands of, of years, for example? Well, I, I constantly hear the argument now that young earth creation is a new invention, and it's been invented by, I think they say, Ellen G. White and the Seventh-day oh, yeah, Adventists. Are you familiar with this? I'm argument? not really very familiar with it, but I actually addressed that when Hugh Ross, who was the, the guy I was basically responding to, the leading old earth creationists in the world probably and my book refuting compromise was largely addressing his claims and one of the claims was this one in fact he he said explicitly you have people like basil the great thomas aquinas martin luther uh, augustine teaching long creation days and i went through their original writing and showed they all believed in a young earth and most right. of them believed in six day six 24 hour days i have got Thomas Aquinas, you can go to Calvin, you can go to Luther, um, you can go to Basil the Great. They clearly believed the days of creation were 24, hour, 24 hours long. They said so explicitly. So, in fact, it's the old earth interpretation that's the novelty. No one saw these ideas until the 19th century. Before then, just about everyone understood the Bible was teaching a much younger earth of less than 6,000 years before they wrote. So he's got it totally back to front, but people are still repeating this mendacity that young earth creation is a modern invention. It's just not true. He's been right. documenting this too. Exactly, exactly. And I wanted to ask that question to you because, yes, we've we've seen that, it, that, you know, there's no validity to that argument. But as you said, they keep repeating it and repeating it for, for some reason. I mean, I don't think you saw a gap theory or day age until the 19th century. We didn't see the framework hypothesis until the 20th century. So, I mean, <laughs> if the framework hypothesis was the real teaching of the Hebrew text, how come it, it took the, 19th, the 20th century before anyone discovered it? So God doesn't write perspicu uh, perspicuously after all. If in fact, it took 2,000 years before people understood what he really meant. And people, the greatest Christian leaders in history, misunderstood it for 2,000 years. I mean, there's some arrogance there and chronological snobbery there. Right. I 100% uh, agree with you on that one, Dr. Sarfati. What would be some of the best, I guess, passages in the scriptures, of course, uh, the Genesis account, that... Um, shows that a, a young earth and evolution can't can't fit with it within the scriptures dr sarfati well, it's interesting when i give an introductory uh talk in churches which of course we haven't done very much this year because of the uh coronavirus but i mean one of my main job was was giving talks to to church congregations and i would hardly ever talk about genesis i went to the new testament i talked about how uh, jesus uh, himself referred to Adam and Eve and a young earth when he said from the beginning of creation God made them male and female so he's going right back to the to Genesis to teach on marriage and he makes this basic incidental um, comment which shows he just accepted and expected everyone else to accept that Adam and Eve were there from the beginning of creation not billions of years after the big bang and lots of evolution. No, Adam and Eve were there from the beginning. Now, six days from the beginning is basically the beginning. When you compare six days to, say, 4,000 years from Adam to Christ, that's it's at the beginning. And then you have the Apostle Paul, when he gives his gospel message in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he compares um, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and emphasizes that it's a physical death, physical resurrection. But he goes back to why did Jesus come to die? He came to, to pay the penalty for sin, which goes back to our ancestor Adam. And Paul mentions Adam by name, by, by man came 
uh, death by a man comes the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. So he's making this connection very strongly. Adam, our ancestor, committed a sin. He brought physical death into the world. And therefore Jesus died physically on the cross to pay the penalty we deserved. And then he conquered physical death. So you got the death of Adam, death of Christ, resurrection of Christ. But evolution and millions of years all put death before Adam sinned, both human and animal death before Adam sinned. And you see, they believe that the Homo sapiens have been around for over 300,000 years. But it means you've got human death before Adam, which you can't do. Otherwise, it chops up the whole message of the gospel that Paul's trying to, to tell you in 1 Corinthians 15 as, as one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And then Romans Five, he talks about a contrast between two heads of humanity. Again, Adam brought sin and death. Jesus brought righteousness and life. So once again, he's making the contrast, Adam versus Christ. Adam brings death. Jesus brings life. And this is all undermined if you have death before Adam. Well, if sin didn't bring death, then how could Jesus' death pay for our sin? Amen. Amen. Well, well said. That was a slam dunk answer, Dr. Sarfati. It's amazing to me that they could actually say young earth creation is something new when Jesus, God himself and the apostles, the apostle Paul, as, as you iterated mm -hmm. there, believed and taught a young creation. And I love that passage, Dr. Sarfati, from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. I've actually heard, and I'm curious if, you, if you're familiar with this argument, I'm sure you are, mm -hmm. you, you are, and I'm shocked every time I hear this, but the critics, when we, when we bring up that passage, that beautiful passage, the, the critics use the argument that this passage had to do with marriage and divorce and not actually creation itself. But as he says from the beginning of creation, you see, and in fact, you've got other passages in the Bible, you know, you're comparing scripture with scripture, but he got the from the beginning of creation. It always refers to the beginning of the actual created order. And right. uh, it's not beginning of marriage. It is clearly um, marriage is there from the beginning of creation. He's teaching marriage as a creation ordinance. I mean, and this is also good for moral apologetics because you have these um, critics saying that Jesus said nothing about gay marriage. But clearly he's defining marriage as one man and one woman. And he's saying this is the marriage that God ordained. There's no other type of marriage that Jesus recognizes except for one man and one woman. Amen. Amen. Another great answer. I, I think their, their response to that, you know, by using that argument just shows what a slam dunk case we have <laughs> well, <if laughs> you know, know, addresses some of these articles and all on our website i think my colleague keaton halley had an argument uh, had an article addressing this it's on creation.com uh from the beginning of marriage keaton halley went addressed it in a, in a web article but it's also in my commentary and also in my my um in refuting compromise so yeah i've covered all those things awesome uh, i'm guessing okay so that would be in this one right here the genesis yes. account a theological historical and scientific commentary on genesis 1 to 11. um awesome answers um dr sarfati now um moving on from here i just <clears> recently <throat> we were talking about this before we went live i just recently read through your chapter in evolution's achilles heels on origin of life and abiogenesis now this this chapter Personally, it, it absolutely blew my mind as to how thoroughly you refuted abiogenesis in a naturalistic origin of life scenario, or I should say scenarios. Uh, can you touch on some of the major problems, for example, the massive chicken and egg problems that abound when it comes to abiogenesis? And of course, Dr. Sarfati, and anything else that comes to your mind on this topic? 
Okay, well, see, I'm a chemist. I know something about chemical synthesis. I think most of the biologists don't really know that much about it, to be honest. I think Dawkins is, is pretty clueless about chemistry. And the thing is, uh, it's not a case of going an argument from in ignorance. It's actually an argument from what I do know about chemistry and information theory and the complexity of living creatures. I mean, as you may have seen in the Achilles heel video, for instance, if, if anyone wanted to make a protein from amino acids, the last thing you'd want in the reaction mixture is water because water will drive the reaction the other way because you have amino acids combined to form proteins and they uh, eject a molecule of water. So it's called condensation polymerization. That's a fancy term. So the last thing you want is to have water there because it drives the reverse reaction. So no, no synthetic chemist is going to have water if he's, if he's trying to make a protein. And yet they want to tell me that life began in some sort of primordial ocean. And oceans normally have water, I thought. So that's a big problem. And then you've got things like the, the amazing information storage system. So even the simplest living cell, it's called the mycoplasma, has about 500 letters of DNA information. But these letters, they code for proteins, but you can't actually decode this, uh, the information in DNA unless you have a lot of decoding machinery. But the problem is that DNA codes for its own decoding machinery. It has the instructions to build its own decoding machinery. So which came first, the, the machinery? Well, how do you get that without the instructions? Or do the instructions come first? But you can't read those instructions unless you have machinery. So you have to have everything working together right from the start. Otherwise, life could not exist in the first place. It couldn't even get started. And if you can't get started, then Darwinian evolution is dead on, in the water. It's like runners uh, they're lining up for a race. They all die on the starting block. That's what we got here. There's no life to, to start even talking about natural selection mutation because the life is not even there in the first place. And another thing is they realize that the uh, accuracy of a translation of the, of the decoding machines must be incredibly accurate. I mean, Manfred Eigen, who was a Nobel chemistry prize winner, he worked out that if you have a genome of so many of n number of letters, the the decoding must be at least one over n in accuracy. So if you have a hundred thousand letters, the decoding machine must only allow one mistake in every hundred thousand. Otherwise, you'll get error catastrophe and it and it grinds to a halt. So right from the start, the decoding machines must be incredibly accurate. So this goes back to Genesis one. God said He created everything very good. And now we have modern science showing that things had to start very good. They had to start basically perfect. And what we're seeing is degeneration. See, it could not build up from imperfection to perfection because without an almost perfect decoding system, the, the thing would come, come crashing to a halt really quickly. I mean, um, imperfect decoding machine. Okay, you've got instructions being read to make the next decoding machine, but you got mistakes because it's not a very good reading machine. So you've got to introduce mistakes into the next generation of machines, which will do a worse job of, of decoding, which will introduce more mistakes in the next generation, and therefore do an even worse job of decoding. So you're getting it, the whole thing crashing to a halt really quickly, unless it started off basically perfect. Nice. Well, um, the na naturalistic evolutionists attempt to defend the abiogenesis by purporting that RNA world is a plausible scenario for natural. Mm -hmm. um, is it actually plausible? And if not, could you go over some of the major problems? Oh, well, RNA world does seem to be the uh, the, the go-to thing, but it's interesting. There's a, a, a 
Dr. Harold Barnhart, who's a German working in New Zealand, he wrote a paper called Why RNA World Hypothesis is the Worst Theory of Origin of Life, except for all the others. <laughs> so, I mean, he admits there's huge problems with the RNA world, but everything else is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, one thing is, they, see, what they, they tell you is that RNA can sometimes act as an enzyme. So what they're trying to do is combine the, the coding and the machinery into one molecule. But what they don't tell you is that it can either do one or the other. See, if it's trying to code for instruction, it has to be loose so it can be the strand can be pulled apart and you can reproduce those instructions. But to be an enzyme, it has to be, be already combined up with each other. You see, so it can't do both. It's either combined or it's not. So, so, so the RNA has to make up its mind. Is it going to be an enzyme or is it going to be a coding uh, molecule? It can't be both. I see. And then well, RNA is an incredibly unstable molecule because I think uh, you might remember 2015 Nobel Prize for Chemistry awarded to Thomas Lindahl and two others because Thomas Lindahl discovered that DNA breaks down incredibly quickly. It's just very vulnerable to ordinary chemistry. So he realized that living things must have amazing repair machines to undo the chemical damage that you suffer every day. Every day, each one of your cells has about a million DNA letters damaged, but you have chemical machines to repair them. Otherwise, you'd be a mutated mess really quickly. You couldn't survive. So this is why the Nobel Prize was awarded in 2015 for the discovery of instability of DNA and the needed chemical repair machines. But RNA is about 100 times less stable than DNA. Wow. So therefore, the idea of RNA arising in a primordial soup when it's a very unstable molecule, it doesn't make any chemical sense. In fact, even the building blocks are very unstable. I mean, ribose, adenine. I mean, for instance, even Stanley Miller, you may have heard him, the, the great yeah. grandfather of the of the origin of life um, experiments. He, he, he did experiments to show that uh, ribose disintegrates in boiling water and even in ordinary water. So it, it looks like right from the start, based on what you're saying, Dr. Sarfati, they would have a major issue trying to even get the building blocks for RNA. The building blocks, as you said, are incredibly unstable. Mm -hmm. Well, for instance, they talk about ribose being formed by formaldehyde and alkaline solution. But what they have to do is they have to stop the reaction at a certain precise time. Otherwise, uh, there's a reaction called the Kanitsaro reaction. When you have alkali and sugar, it'll actually decompose them. So you have to have someone stopping the reaction before the stuff starts to break down again. And that's, I think, uh, Dr. James Tour has talked about this. He's a, a leading synthetic chemist in the world. And he talks about how um, any real synthesis, you have to control the time. You must stop it at the right time. You must have the reactions of the right sequence. You must control the pH, which is acidity or alkalinity. Uh, you have to control the temperature. All these things have to be controlled. Otherwise, things break down. Primordial soup wouldn't have an organic chemist doing all those controls. Right, right. Good point. And aren't a lot of these RNA world experiments highly controlled, highly manipulated, highly contrived? Well, you see, what they're doing, they, they see, they, what they have to do is trying to work out how the first self-reproducing organism arose. So what they're not allowed to use is artificial reproduction scenarios. Like they talk about evolving RNA sequences, but what they're doing is they're artificially reproducing RNA in a way that wouldn't happen in nature to try to explain how the first self-reproducing RNA arose. But they're using reproduction to try to do that, and they haven't even succeeded, by the way. 
but even their methods don't make sense because they're using what they have to explain to produce they're using reproductive machinery to explain how reproduction came about in the first place uh, how about the uh, carbohydrate first hypothesis carbohydrate first well, what do you mean? See, the thing is, um, carbohydrates, that's just sugars. As, you, as I said, sugars are unstable. I mean, that's the thing. They make them in the formaldehyde called the butyrol for um, foremost reaction, but you have to stop that at the right place to stop these sugars from decomposing. I mean, that's the thing. A ribose's instability is very well, well known. So, I mean, carbohydrate first doesn't really make any sense. And also, carbohydrates, they neither code nor do any work. Right. You see the energy molecules, sometimes structural molecules like cellulose. But you see, uh, in living things, you have the nucleic acids, DNA is the information storage system, and proteins do most of the chemical um, work. Most of the machinery is proteins, information, DNA. I'm not sure how carbohydrates are going to fit into that. Right. Good point, uh, Dr. Sarfati. What about somebody who, I guess we got a question here from the audience, I'll throw, somebody who would say, uh, if proteins can last for some time in the water, it's then possible to have them participate in the process. Why is that a problem? Well, okay, see, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, we've got billions of years to perform chemical evolution, but with billions of years, you've got time for the proteins to degrade. So the thing is, time is the enemy, uh, not the friend, because you, the longer you leave it, the more the the, the 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 longer time you have for the reaction mixture to go get to equilibrium, which is away from proteins, away from the polymers, and back to the monomers. And the thing is, how do you get the proteins in the first place? Because you can't just, um, oh, I've got some amino acids from the Miller experiment, which are very dilute and very contaminated. Uh, let's take that to the next stage and see if we can get proteins out of it. They never can do that. Because you know what they do? They say, well, we've found a trace of glycine or alanine from the Miller-type gas-sparking experiment. So let's go to a chemical company and buy pure alanine, which is left-handed. Um, let's activate and see if we can get protein, uh, some polypeptides happening next. They can't do that. But think this is the sort of step they do. Every time they they emit the idea you've got to um, pure, isolate and purify the material and then put it into a carefully controlled reaction to do the next step and the next step and the next step. It just it doesn't work that way. No one's going to spark gases and then try and expect proteins. You'll never find proteins in the Miller-type experiment. Well, like, I like Sorry? And, 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 no, that, that's okay. Great answer, Dr. Sarfati. I love the way you put it, uh, that real chemistry goes in the opposite direction than would be required by the origin uh, or any origin of life scenario that says life came from non-living chemicals because uh, doesn't water it tends to drive the reaction in the opposite or i should say the wrong direction if you like yes and yeah, the other I, thing is things like uh left-handed versus right-handed which we cover like uh, all the proteins and living things are left-handed you know my left hand and my right hand they're mirror images but you can't map them i can't fit this right hand to a left-handed glove it won't work and see the proteins and living and enzymes are all one-handed otherwise the enzyme could not form if you had this mixture of handedness so the problem is a miller experiment um produced an equal number of right and left and there's a, quite a hard problem in chemistry to try to get one from the other so in, in the in the milly yuri experiment then dr uh, mm -hmm. Sarfati, I, I still see people use it to this day um 
did they find any large biomolecules? Did they find any nucleotides, anything of significance? Well, most of what they found was formic acid, okay? That's, I mean, but they don't want to tell you, well, we've got a new way of making formic acid so we can make new antisting material. That's what it is. So you get a few traces of the uh, of amino acids and tweaking it, you can get quite a few different amino acids. But the thing is, uh, in the environment they formed and they couldn't do anything more with them. You couldn't just um, take that, that broth that forms and do anything and try and get protein out of that broth. You could never do it because there are too many other things formed that would stop the reaction going any further. Like well, formic acid would contaminate if you tried to to polymerize, say, alanine or glycine from the millet. The formic acid would get into the chain and stop the chain growing. You see, so you've got the, these very well known problems uh, with all the other stuff that's produced in the Miller experiment acting as poison for any further development. They never actually address that. Well, it, it's a great answer and great points you've made, Dr. Sarfati. Somebody in the chat likes what you said. Time is the enemy of evolution. Uh, well said, Dr. Sarfati. So we constantly hear them saying, well, give us more time. You know, you're, you're not thinking uh, sophisticated like they'll say, you know, give it a million years and eventually we'll get the origin of life. But it's true what you said, right, that uh, more time is no help to them. Well, yeah, because because it, 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 time means you're going to get to equilibrium. And then you got to look at what the equilibrium is, and it's all the monomers and not the polymers. Equilibrium is the racemic mixture of equal left and right handed of right handed things. Um, you, see, you know, there's actually a method. It's called amino acid racemization dating method because they they find that over time, after an animal dies, the amino acids and the proteins will go to an equal mixture of left and right handed. And that's supposed to be a way of working out how long the the thing's been dead. So, so long period of time, you're going to get the racemic mixture back, the equal left and right-handed mixture back. You're going to get things, proteins broken down. DNA shouldn't last um, even um, a few million years, even if it was frozen. Right, right. And this is actually lead into another topic we can cover about how they found DNA in dinosaur bones. Right. Yeah. Which yeah, dated we're... to about ten times the maximum possible survival time of DNA. Yeah, that's um, that's amazing, Dr. Sarfati. You mentioned it a bit earlier uh, in the fact that, well, for one, I've, I've just got so many points written down from what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I like the fact yeah. that it, RNA is more unstable than, than DNA, and DNA is unstable itself. So that seems like a final straw. But uh, the question I want to ask, and I know the audience will enjoy hearing an answer to, the uh, evolutionists, the naturalists, they'll say, well, okay, fine. We don't have an answer for origin of life, chemical evolution, abiogenesis just yet, but that has nothing to do with biological evolution. Um, can you touch on that? Is, is it totally different? Is, um, or is that a valid argument that they use? Well, I think it's actually a, an admission of defeat, really, if they try and say that uh, origin of life isn't part of evolution, when for decades uh, the theories were called chemical evolution. There are departments of, of right. universities working on this called chemical evolution. This is what it used to be called. Now they're saying, well, it's not evolution at all. It's abiogenesis. But that's actually a bit of historical re um, uh, revisionism. And the point is, when you look at some of the, the, the evolutionary textbooks, I've, I've got examples of you know, magazine like Scientific American devoted an issue to evolution and started off with the origin of first life from non-living chemicals by chemical evolution. Okay, so they certainly used to regard this as part of the materialistic worldview. You've got to get a, a simple 
self-reproducing cell before you can even start talking about Darwinian evolution. And it's interesting that Anthony Flew, who is the world's leading atheistic philosopher for decades, he was an Oxford guy like, like Richard Dawkins is, and he said that Dawkins and Darwin overlooked that their theory began with something that had reproductive powers. And this is what a real theory of evolution must account for to get to this being with reproductive powers. And he says that the findings of the you know, 50 plus years of DNA research uh, are a very powerful argument to design. It was this idea that the whole problem of chemical evolution, that's what convinced uh, Anthony Flew to become a theist when he was an atheist for decades before then. Right. Yeah, that's uh, another good answer. I like what you said there. It's a, an, an admission of defeat is exactly what it what it is, because evolution's dead in the water, you know, naturalistic and evolution and materialism. Well, one last um, question, Dr. Sarfati, till we move on to a, a different topic. Uh, you mentioned we were talking about it before we went live. Uh, topo isomerase. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, could you touch on that maybe for the audience? I think that would be a good topic. Okay, now the thing is, think of DNA. It, it's it's a double helix. You know, it's like a, a, a long coiled molecule. I mean, some of you who are older might remember when you had landlines with telephone coils, okay? I mean, I'm showing my age a bit, uh, I guess. Um, the point is, it's uh, DNA of each of your, your trillions of cells, it, it, take one of the DNA from one cell. If you line everything up end to end, it would be about two meters long. But it's only a few atoms thick. And you think of coils, they get tangled up very easily. So, in fact, living things all have a detangling enzyme and different types of them called topoisomerases. And one class is called gyrase. Okay, but what it does, it snips the DNA and does a bit of, of rearranging and then splices it together again. See, otherwise, DNA would be tangled up and you couldn't actually decode it because it would get tangled up when you try to decode it, but you get tangled up when you try to reproduce it. You see? So without these enzymes working in every living thing we have, DNA would be too tangled up to use. So you think of, of what topoisomerase means. It has to, have to do three things. It has to cut, it has to move, it has to splice back together. See, any one of those um, processes would, would be would not be good enough. You'd have to have every one of them working together. So, in fact, one class of antibiotics that you might take if you're really quite sick uh, is called the um, fluoroquinoline. Quinolone, is it quinolone antibiotics? And what that does, it stops the topoisomerase putting the thing back together again. So the bacterial topoisomerase go through the, the DNA, they chop it up, but don't put it back together. So DNA is chopped to smithereens and the bacterium dies. Uh, but then you've got the other chicken and egg type problem is that uh, the instructions to build to isomerase are coded on the DNA, but you can't read those instructions unless you have topoisomerase in action, making sure <laughs> it doesn't get tangled up in the process of trying to read it. So you've got the thing that, that the DNA can't work without topoisomerase, but you can't build the topoisomerase without the instructions, which can't be read unless you've got those enzymes already doing their work. Oh, it's it's so bad for them. Chicken and egg problem after chicken and egg problem. Well, oh, it then, goes all the way, yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I, I could talk about this all all day, and I know the audience could could listen to it all day. So I guess um, before we move on to the evidence for a young Earth, young world, Doctor Sarfati, I, I am curious. Given everything that you've said, are researchers, let's say, in this field, are they advancing at all in origins of life research? <clears throat> I think they're actually finding more and more problems. Right. 
I mean, uh, for instance, we didn't know about the motor ATP synthase, which makes the ATP. It's the world's tiniest motor. I didn't know about this 25 years ago when I first started with the ministry. Okay, so that's something which is, a, again, a new thing that's been discovered. I mean, we're finding more and more um, things that make the, the cell far more complicated than we even knew 20 years ago. So the more discoveries we have, the more problems are being found for evolution. Quite the opposite of what you hear in the, in the um, propaganda that science is solving the problem. No, it's actually finding more and more roadblocks um, to evolution than we had before. So the more we discover, the worse it gets for them, the more problematic it becomes. Oh, very um, much, especially when it comes to the origin of first life, yes. Yeah, that's amazing, Dr. Sarfati. Um, I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Matt. I think you had a question. Mm -hmm. right, well, just before we, uh, you know, we're gonna move on now uh, sure. for evidence to a young Earth or a young world. Uh, what are some of the best evidences against billions of years and for a young world? Well, I mean, okay, I've got different things. There are some age indicators. There are basically some clocks. Now, the thing is, I mean, they're all age indicators have uh, require assumptions. Okay, I mean, I'm saying this right up front, whether it's the evolutionists or the creationists, we all have assumptions. But the thing is, even if we take the evolutionary assumptions of a constancy of rates of processes, there are a number of clocks that point to a much younger age than people think it is. And one of them I've just talked about is the instability of DNA and proteins. When you got Dr. Mary Schweitz, you may have heard of her. She's an uh, outstanding scientist in Montana now, I think North Carolina, who's the, who was the first to discover some uh, lots of dinosaur bones have soft tissues. They have red blood cells, intact blood vessels, um, animal protein, so not contamination from bacteria. And also in a T-Rex bone and a Hypacrosaurus bone, she found DNA and used the standard test to, to get DNA, to, to detect DNA. And the DNA detectable must be uh, reasonably intact to respond to those tests, okay? Uh, and yet the dinosaur, the T-Rex, was supposed to be 68 million years old. And yet uh, experiments on how fast DNA decomposes say it should be totally fragmented into its individual letters in a tenth of that time, even if it was frozen the whole time, minus 5 Celsius, about 23 Fahrenheit. So you freeze DNA, and, and it's going to be broken apart in, in about 6.8 million years. Oh, way. Okay, but yet dinosaurs were meant to have lived in warm climates. So the fast, it's very interesting. When you talk about reaction rates, they're often exponentially dependent on temperature. So if dinosaurs lived in warmer climates, the DNA would break down much faster still. So if it couldn't survive a tenth of that time, even deep frozen, it's not going to survive anywhere near that time if it was actually warm for a lot of that time. <laughs> right. That's yeah, that I think the DNA in the diet is a really hard problem, and they're trying to sort of scramble around. Do they really find DNA? Well, you may as well throw that lab test away, like the DAPI, which produces a fluorescent signal, a standard way of detecting DNA in a double helix form because it just lodges in the minor groove of a double helix and makes a fluorescent signal. Okay, so uh, that's a standard positive test for DNA. And, and it was also in the right place to expect the DNA near where the cell nucleus would have been. So a lot of things uh, add up to actually finding DNA in the dinosaur bones. And yet real chemistry shows it couldn't have survived that long. But the same chemical uh, methods show that it's consistent with the biblical time frame and how much would be expected in a biblical time frame. Well, um, a, a question from the 
audience, Dr. Sarfati, and, and something I was going to ask anyway. So um, Chris Key says, Dr. Sarfati, do you think the iron preservation hypothesis in respect is remotely plausible? Okay, the iron preservation hypothesis is really for the proteins that have been discovered. I think it actually would not work for DNA. Okay, so it's a, it's a different thing. What we're talking about is a reaction called the Fenton uh, reaction. And what Fenton reactions usually does is to generate free radicals that normally destroy organic materials. So what Dr. Schweitz is hoping is that the Fenton reaction might cross-link uh, some proteins and um, help to preserve them. But the Fenton reaction would also destroy a number of things they say they've observed. Some of the amino acids they say they've found would have been destroyed by the Fenton reaction. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say Fenton reaction occur, but it's not going to do what Fenton <laughs> reaction does. Right. The, the chemistry doesn't make sense. Yeah, they always want to have it both ways. And I've heard this ridiculous response, uh, Dr. Sarfati. I'm curious what you would um, say to it. I've heard the critics constantly try and downplay all this overwhelming evidence by pointing to the fact that Mary, Mary Schweitzer herself is not a young earth creationist. They use this as a rebuttal. What are your thoughts on that? The thing is, we've already, we, we said it too, you see. How is it a rebuttal when we actually say she is a theistic evolutionist herself? <laughs> right. so it's what we call an admission against interest. That's a legal term for it. She's a, a long, a, an old earther, but she finds these stuff, the stuff um, which go against her beliefs. And so she, of course, she's, she's trying to work out how to um, maintain her belief system in the face of the actual evidence. In fact, there's actually a revealing, um, I think uh, it was a 60 Minutes interview with, with uh, Leslie Stahl, and it's interesting how they say uh, uh, that the laws of science show they couldn't have existed even one million years. So the laws of science say less than a million years, but she maintains their 68 million years, you see. So it's actually trying to find a way to get around the laws of science. Yeah, that's an awesome answer. Well, you, you just shut down that argument. And yet that's what I think that's another admission of defeat, I guess, if, if that's what they have to resort to. And we are not saying that she is a young earth creationist. Um, well, in fact, if she was a young creation, then they'd actually attack, they wouldn't even uh, uh, publish her work, you see, because even when <laughs> yeah, she wrote, point. it was so controversial, her boss, Jack Horner, who's an atheist, I mean, she said, well, I don't believe it. How could this happen? How could blood cells survive that long? So go and do the experiment again, and they find over and over again, well, the experiment actually showed they were there. Okay, right. so, yeah. and then you got challenged, was it really blood cells? Was it really blood vessels? You had the critics of Schweitzer attacking what she'd found, but I think she's won all those uh, debates against the critics. So, so they have to concede that she found what she said she found, that she was an, a, a good scientist, uh, and she was reporting honestly and, and accurately. And now they've got to trigger, well, okay, since they're there, how could they have survived? So hence the phantom reaction uh, proposal. What about the evidence from carbon, Dr. Sarfati, like uh, with diamonds, for example? Oh, yes. Well, see, this carbon dating is the best known type of radiometric dating. Sorry, pardon me. The radioactive dating methods, you take a, an unstable parent uh, isotope, which decays over time into daughter isotopes, and supposedly from the amount of chemicals in a sample, you can tell how long that thing has been decaying for. Now, you have to have a certain assumption, like how much do we start with each of these things? Right. I mean, what, did we actually start with um, zero daughter atoms, or were they there in the first place? Um, has the rate been constant? Well, that's actually a reasonably good assumption, but there are exceptions to that, which I think have been found now. 
uh, good evidence for that. But also, is the system a closed system or has it been contaminated with some of the stuff from coming from outside so you're destroying it? I mean, we, we always like to think of a bath, a bathtub, it, it's uh, got 20 gallons in it and the taps are on and it fills at two gallons per minute. So how long did it take for the bath to, uh, to get to where it is? And you might say, well, obviously it's 10 minutes, divide 20 by two. But in fact, what if I told you uh, that in fact, um, someone helpfully poured some boiling water in because it got a bit cold. So the source is some stuff from outside and you didn't know the plug was leaking. So some stuff is leaking out of it too. And also the way I fill a bath, I might actually turn every, both taps on uh, full and then I actually slow down the tap rate so it doesn't overflow. You see, so you're assuming that the taps have been the rate, the rate that they're flowing now, but in fact, they've been changed over time. So you've got these certain assumptions that even apply to something as simple as a bathtub, uh, and yet it applies to the radioactive dating itself. But then let's talk about carbon dating. See, carbon is one, carbon-14 is an unstable isotope of carbon. You know, carbon is, uh, you've got carbon in your body. It's the most important element for life. Okay, uh, so all of us have carbon, uh, one in every trillion carbon atoms is carbon-12, which is unstable. And the theory is uh, something dies, it stops exchanging carbon with the environment. So the existing carbon is not replaced and it decays over time. And the half-life is about 5,730 years. And the half-life is the time taken for the stuff to get to half its initial amount. After two half lives, it's going down to a quarter. After three half lives, it's down to one eighth and one sixteenth and thirty second, etc. Okay. The point of doing the calculations, I'm, I'm enough of a chemist to do those calculations. You could calculate that even if the whole Earth was full of carbon fourteen, pure carbon fourteen, it wouldn't even last a million years. Okay, you wouldn't find any detectable carbon fourteen after a million years. So then you go to diamonds, and diamond is a type of carbon. Uh, an allotrope, as we say in chemistry. So it's an allotrope of carbon is the hardest substance on Earth, apart from the human heart anyway. Uh, so the point is, once the, the diamond crystal has been formed, it should be totally free from contamination. It should be about as contamination-free as you can get. So it's a perfect laboratory to test carbon-14 if it's a good dating method, and yet they've tested diamond after diamond and find there's still carbon-14 in those diamonds. And yet the diamonds are meant to be a billion years old or more. Impossible. But if they're over 100,000 years or even over 50,000 years, we shouldn't expect to find any carbon-14 in the diamonds at all. So the fact that we're finding carbon-14 carbon in coal and diamonds shows they haven't existed long enough for the carbon-14 to have decayed. So this puts a strict upper limit on the possible age of these things. Not the actual age, but the, it couldn't be any higher than this. It might be lower, but it can't be higher. So carbon-14 is definitely a friend of the biblical creation model and a, and a terrible enemy for the billions of years dogma. Right. That's a really good point, Dr. Sarfati. And I find when you show them the evidence for like carbon and fossils, or even in strata that the evolutionists themselves will date to tens of millions of years old, they'll say mm. contamination. But then you bringing up diamonds, well, diamonds being the hardest substance on earth, wouldn't its interior then be very resistant to contamination? I mean, well, can I they think use that diamond isn't resistant, nothing is. Right, 
Yeah, I mean, you might as well throw the, the method away. If if it can't work on diamonds, it, it, I wouldn't trust it on a, on a, on a bone or or a, or a parchment, for instance, if it, if it doesn't work on diamonds. So you see, um, you can have it both ways. Either you have to say that carbon fourteen dating is reliable, or you can have billions of years. You can't have both. You can't right. do both. It, it sounds like they want to have both with, with a lot of um, the evidence and arguments. We've got um, Tony Torpa in the chat who says, what is a good explanation for how radiocarbon C14 originally got inside the diamonds where it was found in rate studies? I would have to assume it was primordial diamond, primordial carbon, because um, it couldn't have got in from outside. So, so presumably primordial carbon when the diamond was formed in the mantle. That's the only thing I can think of. That God created a whole range of isotopes, right. and there's a primordial amount in the initial in diamonds. Because I'm not sure if diamonds are regarded to have who are to have formed from organic carbon. So uh, I'd have to say it's primordial um, carbon that was created there. The fact that however it got there is there. Right. The fact that it's there in the first place means it can't be that old. I, I think based on everything you're saying, the fact that, I mean, we find carbon in diamonds, fossils, I believe they've even found it in coal and fossilized wood yeah. mm -hmm. in, in places where they say are tens of millions of years old. So hundreds of millions, billions even, yeah. Billions of What about, I guess, because uh, Tony here mentioned the rate project, didn't they also find helium, which is incredibly slippery? They've discovered helium. Okay, this is Dr. Russell See, Dr. John Baumgartner was the one who did the carbon-14 work for, for rate, and he's got some really good material. He answers the objections really well. Dr. Russell Humphreys did another part of the rate um, project, which was to look at helium and zircons. And zircon is a very hard mineral uh, that's quite quite hard to melt. And what, what he found was helium and zircon. Now, the zircon has radioactive L, uh, uranium in it, and uranium is turning into lead. And, and in the process of uranium turning into lead, it loses eight helium, uh, uh, helium atoms from its nucleus. It's called alpha decay. That's, alpha particles are helium nucleus. So it emits an alpha particle. The alpha particle grabs some electrons and becomes helium. So you've got a lot of... Of the fact that you have helium there shows that quite a lot of decay has happened. But in fact, if it had happened gradually over millions of years, the helium should have leaked out of the zircon because you can measure how fast helium leaks out. And there's still a lot of helium there. I mean, you think about how long if you have a helium balloon for your kid's birthday party, you know very well that it's going to uh, shrink in a few days because the helium is so slippery, it's, it goes through the rubber of the balloon. You've had that frustration, I bet. Right. <laughs> so even, even zircon is, is not uh, hard enough to stop the helium from, from leaking out of it, and that can be measured. And so what uh, Dr. Humphrey says is that this is, shows that we've had um, millions of years of decay, but it must have happened in an accelerated manner. So it's, it's producing this decay really quickly uh, such that the helium hasn't had a chance to escape. So all the decays happened very recently, and so the helium from that decay is still not yet leaked out. And he also did a control experiment with argon, which is like a, it's the same sort of gas, the same sort of inert gas as helium, but much um, heavier, so it diffuses more slowly. But he did a control on, on argon diffusion, and again, it, it backed up what he found with the helium. So uh, helium is showing that the decay must have happened only about 6,000 years ago, otherwise the helium would have gone.
which again points to the fact that the decay rate has not been constant and that undermines right. another major assumption <laughs> behind radioactive dating is the constancy of decay rate and clearly Dr. Humphreys has shown that it's not constant. So I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. So that's evidence directly in the rocks then, Dr. Sarfati, that rapid nuclear decay has occurred, right. which gets rid of that assumption, the constant decay. The thing is, um, it's quite common in science to discover that it's something has occurred without being able to explain the mechanisms of how that has occurred. I mean, Newton discovered that the law of gravity exists. He didn't uh, offer any um, explanation as to how gravi why gravity works in the first place. He said, I form no hypothesis. He wasn't going to, to speculate on what causes gravity, only that gravity exists. And I'm, for instance, I'm not sure how nuclear decay rate gets accelerated, only the fact that it has clearly been accelerated. Right, that's a really good point you make because I've even read uh, in in the rate research uh, not only helium, but I, I believe it was Dr. Andrew Snelling who's pointed out the existence of fission tracks and radio radio halos. Oh yeah, I mean he, he's pointed out that there has been a lot of decay, but clearly it's happened in a way uh, that's been accelerated. And another thing he's pointed out, for instance, you got um, different rocks. Um, I mean the same rock has been dated with different data. Uh, radioactive dating methods and they give different dates right but this is consistent if you have some episode of accelerated decay that accelerates the the long-lived isotopes more than the short-lived isotopes and the alpha more than the beta uh, so it seems like there's a pattern there which seems to fit whatever is causing accelerated day, uh, decay is working in a pattern that seems to be consistent throughout everything that's been measured they try to say that isochron dating makes up for that, though, and that that's irrefutable. Is well, this isochron dating is supposed to take uh, the, the, into account the um, the initial composition, uh, an initial isotopic composition. But Dr. Snelling years ago, twenty plus years ago, and also Dr. Taz Walker in his honors geology um, project, he could actually find isochron plots with non-radioactive isotopes. So it means that the isochron uh, lines they're finding is not caused, they're not caused by radioactive decay over time because he could do it with non-radioactive isotopes. Ah, that's awesome. So it means there's some sort of chemical fractionation process that's going on there, which maybe have nothing to do with radioactive decay because he's getting it in non-radioactive um, isotopes. And since you guys like Lord of the Rings, though, it's something, there's a Lord of the Rings connection I can make here too. Yeah. Now you, you know what Mount Doom is, right? Of course, yeah. Well, you know, the real live mountain in New Zealand is called Ngorohoi. It's a mountain in the middle of the North Island. It's a real live mountain. I've seen it personally many times, okay? Um, you see, what they did is they dated, they got some lava flows they know they knew happened in the 50s. They know the date of a lava flow. And so 50 years later, they did radioactive dating method tests on this lava flow of known age, and they were getting dates of millions and even billions of years even though they know the lava, um, the rock was formed only 50 years before. I find that to be so funny because why in, why in the world then, Dr. Sarfati, would we trust these dating methods if many of them, as you're pointing out here, can't even give accurate dates for rocks of unknown age? But then apparently we're supposed to trust these dating methods for rocks of unknown age. Exactly, yeah. So that's a thought. the real science would say, well, let's see if we can test this on something we know and see if it works. And clearly it does not work. So therefore to use it for something we don't know, I'd rather trust the eyewitness account of the Bible than these dating methods that, right. that fail in, in places where we can test them. Amen, 
Amen. Great point. So I find it amazing that based on everything we're talking about here in this portion of the interview, if radioisotope decay was accelerated, as indicated by, say, the helium, the fission tracks, the radio halos, the findings of the rate team, and this occurred, say, during the Genesis flood, uh, Dr. Sarfati, mm -hmm. then realistically, these radioisotope decay clocks could never actually be relied upon when they do, say, date, quote unquote, rocks as, say, millions and billions of years. That's a problem. I think they couldn't be. Right. I've, I've constantly heard this. This just kind of came to mind because in light of all this evidence for rapid nuclear decay, say during the flood, they want to just ignore that evidence and then point out that, um, you know, the, the flood itself would have generated too much heat and then that heat would have boiled the earth or boiled the oceans. But then they're not willing to explain the evidence for um, like rapid accelerated decay. It's clearly occurred, like you said, uh, Dr. That's the thing. I mean, there may be some things which are still uh, not having been fully answered, like the heat problems with, with some flood models. But the point is, uh, when evolutionists are faced with a problem they haven't got a clue about answering, like the origin of first life, they always say, well, let's, let us, um, this is what science is about. It's about solving problems. In that case, the same allowance has to be given to creations. If we have a, have a problem that's not yet solved, then, yeah, give us a chance to solve them. That's what, what you demand for yourselves. I mean, they don't give up on their materialism when they can't right. possibly explain origin of first life. And, yeah, we're supposed to give up creation because uh, we haven't explained everything about the heat model, the heat production <laughs> of some of these things. The double standards are rife there. Exactly. And, and that's what, what came to mind was the double standard based on what we were talking about. Plus, when it comes to the so-called heat problem anyways, when you're thinking about a global flood, and I guess we can move on to that topic, mm -hmm. the, the massive amount of water that was on the earth at the time of the flood would have, I would imagine, taken up a lot of that radiation and heat. I mean, it sounds yeah. like they're almost um, making assumptions on the impact of the flood itself with, with their arguments. Well, I mean, I think they, they're trying to get it. They, they, they think that even the flood might have done it, but I think there's still too many unknowns about what could have happened. I think there are some, even though I think the flood was, was largely a natural thing, but I think it doesn't mean there weren't any miracles going on during the flood. Right. I mean, we try not to overdo that. Um, because I think there's a lot of natural processes going on, but I think something, some things are going on. It's certainly something God had um, used as a method of judgment, so I'm not ruling out um, uh, miraculous things. I just try not to, to, to invoke it if I can help it. Amen. Amen. Well, okay, so I guess that being said then, Dr. Sarfati, we know the critics of young earth creation scoff at the fact of a Genesis flood since this mm -hmm. is kind of where we're venturing into. Yeah. Um, Dr. Sarfati, is... Is a global flood consistent with the modern scientific data? I think it's the best explanation of what we're finding. And it's an interesting that uh, when it comes to the planet Mars, they're usually quite happy to talk about global floods on Mars. And they talk about a Noachic, a Noachian epoch, which is named after uh, a place named after Noah. Okay, so happy with a global flooding on Mars, which hasn't got a drop of liquid water but don't want to believe it on Earth, which is 70% covered by water. And in fact, more than that, if the mountains were flattened down and the, and the ocean bottoms raised, so everything was totally smooth, um, a smooth ball, uh, the water in the ocean today would cover the whole thing to a depth of about three kilometers or about two miles. So there is plenty of water to flood the Earth. All you have to do is have the surface a bit more even than it is now. So, I mean, that's one evidence. Well, how could the flood have covered Mount Everest? Well, Everest didn't exist before the flood. 
it, it grew up very rapidly after the flood. You see, so that some of the uh, the um, uh, objections don't really understand the biblical flood model at all. Okay, when it comes to evidence, uh, there's three basic lines of evidence. Okay, one is the huge extent of the layers. They, they can actually match them across whole continents and even match them with um, things on other continents. So if you're going to have a huge effect like a layer, you must have a huge cause as well. The cause is, must also be global in extent if the effect is global in extent, like these very long, wide layers. The other thing is the layers must have formed very rapidly. Otherwise, how can you have fossils in the first place? Have you ever seen fossil roadkill? <laughs> right. No. <laughs> to get a fossil, you have to bury it quickly. And this, again, recent research that's been published in our, our, our website and our magazine um, shows that you have to bury something uh, deeply to get a fossil. Otherwise, uh, it'll get eaten by scavengers, it would bloat and float and disintegrate, so you, the, the skeleton falls apart. Even on the ocean bottom, you don't find whales and things on the ocean bottom because they get eaten by bone-eating worms called osidax, which will eat the bones. Uh, when you go to the, the, the tra tragedy of the Titanic, when they finally went down there, no human bodies were found down there. They're long gone. They found some shoes which were clearly been worn by one of the victims, but there was no body to, to speak of there. See, so so to, to get a fossil, you, millions of years is the enemy once again. You have to bury it really quickly so it actually doesn't bloat and float and it stays where it is. And then cements and replaces. You see, the other thing about uh, re, just recent discovery, to bury the thing, you have to have something porous because what happens during decomposition produces a lot of yucky stuff that helps to turn the whole thing into mush. And what the, the, the uh, sediment does is absorb some of that yucky stuff before it turns this thing into mush. So the whole the upshot of this, it has to be buried by something really quickly uh, and to, to, to stop it bloating and floating and stopping it from, from turning into mush. You've got all these things that have to be done. So again, when you see these huge dinosaurs and massive graveyards, you know there must have been a very rapid burial. You've caught dinosaurs in the middle of a fight. You've, you've caught some of these sea creatures in the middle of giving birth. Right. I was just going to point that out. It's poor ichthyosaur we often use. Uh, was it lying on the ocean bottom for millions of years, slowly giving birth? <laughs> right. I've had a long, difficult labor. I think um, this is going a bit far for me. Right. Yeah. The, the, the last thing, I've okay, got wide extent of the layers, rapid formation of the layers, but also very little time between the layers. Because right. on the surface of layers, you often see footprints or ripple drop marks, even raindrop marks. I mean, Think about if you left a footprint outside, how long is that footprint going to last, do you think? Yeah, not long. Yeah, not very long, not right? Long. So the thing is, if you're getting footprints, you can't have millions of years between the layer of the footprints and the next layer that buried them. Otherwise, the footprints would be long gone. Exactly. Right. So we've got, like in, in Queensland, Australia, my state in Australia, they found dino there's a, a dinosaur national monument which has uh, 3,000 dinosaur tracks uncovered now, they, they had to uncover them by lifting up the rock, getting rid of the top rock layers, tons and tons of the, the rock over, over over on the top of it. But as soon as they exposed them, the footprints started to wear away. Even though they were rock, they had to they were starting to wear away if so they pulled a protective shed over it. No, that wasn't enough. They're now in a building, a conservation building, that controls temperature, humidity, stops running water, stops animals, stops humans going. It's, it's a really fragile, had to be protected by this elaborate conservation building.
They want to tell me that these footprints were laid down and millions of years later, the next layer came in and buried them. Yeah. <laughs> no, there must be very little time between the laying of the footprints and the actual burial of them that cemented them in place. Right. So it, it, it's very wide, rapidly formed, and very no time between the layers. That adds up to a, a basically very quick event that, that laid down these layers uh, pretty much in one year. Right. It's it's strong indication of sudden and rapid burial, even just given what you were talking about with the fossils we find of animals giving birth, fish being mm. eaten. So um and, and I find it funny, Matt, I know you're just gonna ask a question, but it just came to mind because um we constantly hear the critics, evolutionists say that uh creation young earth creation doesn't make testable predictions. But from my understanding, there was a prediction made by uh Dr. John Baumgartner on the the, the flood model. Mm -hmm. And it was confirmed. I believe they found um, massive slabs of, of cold slabs of rock, I believe, at the base of the mantle based on... Um, oh, yeah, that's a very important thing because um, <laughs> Dr. Baumgartner's flood model is catastrophic plate tectonics and you have this runaway subduction effect. You've got one of the tectonic plates going beneath another that's called subduction. You see, if this was done over millions of years, the subducted plates down the bottom would have warmed up to the temperature of the surrounding mantle rock. But in fact, when you when you take the temperature, it's actually very quite cold. It's it's a thousand degrees or so colder, which means it hasn't had time to warm up yet. Which means it must have been in place very quickly and not that long ago, like say four and a half thousand years ago, and not millions of years ago. Otherwise, it certainly would have warmed up to the temperature of the surrounding mantle rock. That's a very important prediction, that. Right. I, I was fascinated by that prediction because, like you said, if it descended into the deep hot mantle, then obviously those e enormous slabs of, of cool rock should have been melted or just much warmer. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, uh, very good. And Dr. Humphreys has made predictions, uh, tests or predictions about the, the planetary field, magnetic field of, of Uranus and Neptune, which were basically confirmed when Voyager went past them and, and, and measured the magnetic fields. They were basically in what Dr. Humphreys predicted, which was way out of line with what evolutionists were predicting. Exactly. So they were successful. Then I want to just note a... a a contradiction in what evolutionists claim. They, they will claim uh, evol uh, creation is not scientist because it's not falsifiable or testable. And then the next breath, they say, well, creation has been proven wrong in these, this and that area. <laughs> right. Which is it? Well, right. Which is it, exactly. Another one of the things that they talk about too all the time is oh, there's not enough time from four and a half uh, thousand years ago for all the species that we have on the world today. No this objection as well? Well, I, I cover that in my in refuting compromise as well. Uh, the point is, um, you, speciation happens a lot more rapidly than people want to believe. Because if you've got a, a, a lot of heterozygosity, which means you've got a very wide range of different genes, and then you have small and isolated populations, you can get speciation happening very quickly without any new information being. In fact, usually it's a result of losing information. Like, I mean, species of mosquitoes in the London Underground Tube Station, as they call it there, which can't breed back with the ones on the surface anymore. So you've got a clear example of speciation there, reproductively isolated, no new information, but clearly a rapid speciation. And the thing is, it's well known that mountainous areas are very good for producing speciation quite rapidly because you have the, the conditions for isolation. The mountain range provide a geographical barrier 
that isolates the small groups. And this is what you've got coming out of the ark. You've got small um, groups that quickly become isolated by the mountainous region. That's the ideal um, situation for rapid speciation. So the evolutionists don't even know their own model. It's called allopatric speciation. And the ark would be a perfect environment for allopatric speciation. So uh, sometimes the evolutionists need to learn their own model better than they, they do. <laughs> right. And, and no then there are everyone to know more about evolution than the evolutionists, evolutionists want us to learn. <laughs> right, exactly. Learn better than they know it. Yeah, we we seem to understand their model better than they do. And then at that, uh, based on your answer, they want to argue against a straw man. They want to assume evolution to argue against creation mm -hmm. by by assuming that we explain the origin of genetic diversity as a result of mutations. When, as you explained, Dr. Sarfati, we explain a lot of it as uh, created heterozygosity, as you pointed out. Um, I think you've had Dr. Carter on your show not too long ago, and he, he's, he's uh, uh, gone into this in a lot of detail. Right. Um, I had a question. We have questions flying by in the audience. Right? I think I might have missed it. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Audience, very lively audience. We got uh, 40 plus people right now. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Um, we're a big fan of you, Dr. Sarfati. You've, you're an incredible blessing. Um, Chris Keith says, Dr. Sarfati, do you think it, it, it remotely plausible poly straight trees could have formed over millions of years? Well, okay, the word polystrate means many layers. And the point is, it's been found for, for a long time that you have a fossilized tree trunk that goes through lots of different layers. And you have even evolutionists like Derek Ager. He, he admits the problem that, I mean, it'd be ridiculous if the, the layers were formed slowly and gradually because the top of the tree would have rotten by then. Would have rotten. I mean, imagine if you have wood that could be exposed to the elements for millions of years. You'd be a multimillionaire if you could discover wood like that. I imagine. <laughs> it's a point. You see, it's no way the the top, the bottom's being fossilized, uh, but the top would rot by then. So the point is, um, the all the layers must have built up and buried that tree before it had a chance to rot. But then you got the problem is that Ager admitted um, that uh, you've had rapid episodes and then long periods of nothing happening but he says it looks both uniform and continuous maybe it looks uniform and continuous because it was uniform and continuous this is what the, the polystrates are showing us that you've had a rapid formation of layers uh, and that's again another evidence for the rapid formation of layers one after the other with no hardly any time gap between them Nice, nice. Another uh, a typical question we get is, how, how come there are bacteria and viruses? Aren't these things bad? And the critics like to point to them as evidence against young Earth creation. What's the Okay, most bacteria and viruses are good for us. I mean, you know, you've got probably slightly more bacterial cells than human cells in, in a healthy human body. Right. Well, I think it's about 30 trillion human cells and about 38 trillion bacterial cells. Most of them are in your, your large intestine, the colon, okay? So they're, they're good for you. As soon as a baby's born, uh, the lower, the, the, the large intestine's populated with, with trillions of these bacteria. The immune system's working really, really, really hard, much harder than it works again when, it's, when your baby's vaccinated. It's the hardest thing it has is to try to control these germs inside your gut so they stay where they're meant to be. But they're doing a good thing. They're actually helping you digest some food, you see. So they're good for you. And most bacteria are, are good for you even now. But there are ways since the fall happens uh, that some good things could become bad things. I mean, it seems that some of the parasitic bacteria have 
uh, are related to bacteria which are not parasitic, but the bacteria have lost about 80% of their genes. Wow. Lost. Which means they can they have to be parasites. They they can't get the nutrients unless they're parasites. But the thing is they've lost a lot of information. In fact, you look at parasites, they seem to have all been um, degraded. They're genetically um, deteriorated in relation to some beneficial germ. There's some machinery that gets lost sometimes and the thing has no choice but to be a parasite. And even viruses, you've probably got 10 times more viruses than you have bacteria in your body because the viruses are helping to regulate the bacterial population in your, in your intestines. So they're doing a good thing as well. These are bacteriophage viruses that are regulating your bacterial population. And they're all over the earth. I mean, in the sea, you've got bacteria, uh, viruses regulating all these things. In fact, one secular article earlier this year was saying that, yeah, if we eliminate all viruses, you'd probably be healthier for about one and a half days before you started to die. <laughs> And I think even coronavirus, I mean, that seems to be a benign bat virus that's got out of its proper uh, habitat. Right. Uh, influenza seems to be a benign um, avian, uh, is, a, is a waterfowl, ducks and things like that. It seems to be a, a benign thing. It does some good in the duck, but when it gets out of the duck population, comes into human, it can be very nasty. So when these viruses jump, species or as you said jump from their original habitat that's where they can become harmful that's when they can burn hot and fast kind of thing yeah that's a that's a big thing yeah and dr carter's uh, written articles about that he wrote on the coronavirus and that's the thing it's called zoonotic viruses that originally ha were in other organisms it seems that bats uh use viruses to keep down cancer it seems like they kill cancer cells quite well so they do some good for the bats but when they get out of the bat they do some harm for us ebola and the coronavirus the covid 19 sars cov 2 does harm to us and ebola does harm to us but it probably does a good some good things for the bats right that actually that's a really really good point um to us i'd imagine our immune system it, it, it's foreign to us therefore we can't uh, the, our body doesn't recognize it i, I just mm. I, I love the answer you're giving because this is an argument that they sometimes pose to us as like mm -hmm. a, a knockout argument when in fact it makes me based on what you're saying dr sarfati it makes me wonder um imagine being in a world without bacteria and viruses <laughs> you know like you said we'd survive yeah, even a day and I think, therefore, Adam pre-fall would have had an immune system because the immune system distinguishes between self and non-self. So uh, if Adam had healthy bacteria in his large intestine, he still had to have the immune system to keep the bacteria where they belong. So even in the pre-fall world, there would have been a function for, for the immune system. Right. They wouldn't have got sick because it would, would have worked perfectly. Now our immune system doesn't always work perfectly because we're living in a fallen world, but Adam and Eve's immune system would have been perfect. Awesome answer. Well, um, Dr. Sarfati, we're we're running out of time with you here. Time has really flown by. We really appreciate your time. So oh, I want to I want to get this question in here before we have to call it a day because yeah. of how many times I've gone through your refuting Dawkins book. I think it would be good for the audience to hear because I noticed that Richard Dawkins Dawkins likes to point to the Lenski experiment as solid evidence for evolution, and I find that you dismantle that really sufficiently in that book. Uh, so the question would be, is that actually evidence for that type of evolution people like Dawkins want to believe in so badly? The problem is uh, that humans have such a long generation time, say 25, 30 years, that it's sort of impossible to, uh, to look at the 
at what they want. So what they've done is go to bacteria that can reproduce every 20 minutes or so. And hopefully with so many generations, they might be able to see some evolution happening. But in fact, for decades, you see, Lenski has done this bacterial um, experiment to look at the populations of bacteria, see what he could find. Now, he almost gave up on it because it was so hopeless. So he went to computer simulations, the Avida thing, which also doesn't make any sense either. But it's because he gave up on bacteria for such a long time. He found some things which could supposedly digest something different, the citrate, which it couldn't do before. But what it turns out to be, in fact, is that we have a number of uh, probably about two information losing mutations that that turn out to be beneficial. And when we look at it, look at a lot of the claimed beneficial mutations, they are information downhill. They're actually breaking something and not making something. And of course, there are many more ways of breaking something than making something. So it's not surprising. You see, all things can actually digest citrate. There's something called the citric acid cycle. Bacteria have that. But most of the time, uh, what we have, we, we do that when we've got oxygen because it's, it's um, wasteful to do it when, it's we, when we have oxygen. We've got other things we can do. Sorry, when we have oxygen, we don't normally use that because it's not as efficient. We have aerobic processes. But if we are short of oxygen, then we have anaerobic processes that use citric acid. So normally, uh, the bacterium has the, the switch. It's the citric acid thing is switched off when there's oxygen around. And only switch on when there's a lack of oxygen. But what happened, it seems like you have a couple of mutations that uh, turn the switch back on. So it now the citric acid digestion lasts the whole time. So in those circumstances, it's actually a useful thing to have this ability to, to uh, digest citrate, whether you have oxygen or not. But it's still, it's a downhill change. The, the main um, mechanisms are already there. They already existed. So all we've done is just turn on the switch so that the switch is permanently on. I mean, you can imagine if you've got a car alarm, uh, maybe you could actually deter burglars if it was on the whole time because who wants to hear that <laughs> the whole time? Right, good but point. Who would really want that alarm because I, mean, I don't want, as a driver, to have the alarm blaring in my, in my, my ears when I'm driving, you see. So we want to have an ability to switch it on, but there might be a time when a permanent on disabling the off switch might be an advantage. Right. And this is right. the best he's got. You see, at the moment, you've got two beneficial mutations that are coordinated. Both of those seem to be downhill changes. That's the best they can do is two, two mutations. Some of these things we, we need to explain um, must require millions of, of tiny changes to build up machines of living things, all things that we have to, to, uh, to live. I mean, so just getting a couple of mutations in huge numbers of millions of generations, and that's the best they've got. It's, it's pretty sad that the best they got, uh, Dr. Sarfati, as you're pointing out, are still reductive or still downhill. And that's a great answer to uh, Richard Dawkins' use of the Lenski experiment. Because from my understanding, too, even though there were some uh, organismal or some bacterial adaptations observed, overall, I think his, his uh, bacterial populations are shrinking in functional genome size. I think what yeah. we're observing even in, in that experiment is devolution. As, as well, we definitely devolution because it's going downhill because uh, uh, the repair machines don't work perfectly. And um, if we're keeping them alive artificially we're not even getting rid of some of the worst things but we're preserving them and then um we get this occasional thing which has a break breaking thing something's broken but it actually does better than something that's non-broken right 
right? So you're breaking down pre-existing. We've got another thing with antibiotics. Again, uh, some this, some breaking of a germ can make it resistant to antibiotics. I, I like the way you say that because it makes me think that evolutionists oftentimes want to point to the phenotype. When you mm -hmm. actually go down on a molecular level, go down to the genotype, and you see, as you're pointing out, Dr. Sarfati, things are breaking down mm. for adaptive purposes, but it's all downhill. It's not it uphill like evolution. I'd say even that. on the phenotype level, it's downhill because you've got things like um, yeah, blind uh, creatures in caves. So clearly, there's right. a phenotypic change of loss of uh, the eyes are shriveled up, and it, but it's beneficial. You don't need eyes if there's pitch black, and you don't really want eyes because you're getting damaged too easily. Right. In a case where natural selection is not eliminating creatures that can't see, and it might even be favoring them because they're less likely to be damaged. But again, it's a downhill change going from sighted to blind is downhill, clearly. Well, and that's why the problem. Yeah, that's such a great point. And that's why I, I look to their arguments. I feel like they have a kind of a worthless view of, of fitness because to them, I guess the way that they define evolutionary fitness, the blind cave fish or the wingless beetles, that would be a gain in fitness. Well, when in fact, survive, you see, but they do survive. But the thing is, it's still downhill. It doesn't explain how sight or flight got there in the first place. I want to see how new things get there, not how some existing things get broken. Right. Like, so, things can be broken. It's very easy. I mean, it's a lot of different ways a human can become blind, for instance, a damage to the optic nerve or damage to the cornea or um, retinal detachment. The optic nerve could be not formed. So many different ways that a human could become blind, but not very many ways a human can see, really. It's very fortunate that um, most of us have decent eyes. But it's so many much ways to break it, not very many ways to make it. It's, it's much easier to break something than to actually build it up. To gain something novel, which is all consistent with with our model of, um, you know, a perfect creation and and the fall and and kind of just degradation and extinction. Um, yes, what we're seeing, so everything we're seeing in science is so consistent with creation and fall. But often the critics don't uh, neglect the fall part of it, though. Right. They will point to something which is not quite working right now and, and say, well, therefore, but it wasn't made right in the beginning and overlooking the fact that it deteriorated, it deteriorated from its original perfection. And I think even now we see a perfect concept of design, but in this fallen world, the concept of sight has been marred by you know, thousands of years of deterioration. Exactly right. It, it kind of goes back to your answer to the bacteria and the viruses, you know, where they're looking at some that have maybe crossed. It's kind of like I think of it like a hammer, you know, a hammer can be used for good construction mm -hmm. purposes, building, or of course, it can also be used for bad. And so again, kind of you can use it for bad and for good. There are many ways you can use a hammer for bad, only one way you can use it for good. We've got a nail there, right? Amen. Amen. So I, I guess, but we're going on an hour and a half here and you've been so generous and, and gracious with your time. We're still at uh, 40 people in the audience and you have really, really, um, you've really blown us away, Dr. Sarfati. This has so been really good. Oh, another question. Okay. Yeah, we did get, um, and, and Chris Keith here is, is paying $5 to ask it. So oh, well, I better try and answer. Now, <laughs> it's interesting. He punctuated equilibrium uh, was invented by Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldred because they realized that the fossil record did not show gradual changes. And they also under, didn't understand how changes could be gradual because certain uh, things that we see would have to be fully functional to work. You couldn't build them up gradually. See, on the genetic level, you couldn't build up these things gradually. They had to be fully functional or not at all. And the fossil record didn't show gradual 
change either. It showed sharp, abrupt changes. Uh, so um, what they were trying to do is saying that the, we're the ones who are following the evidence. We're following the evidence of what we see. We see things appearing abruptly. We don't see the, the line of transitional forms linking one basic thing to another basic thing. Um, but then, see, Richard Dawkins will say, well, I mean, how could you build up these things anything but gradually? You need a miracle if it's not built up gradually. So I'd say they're both right. Dawkins is right that these things couldn't be built up suddenly. And, I'm, and Gould is right saying they couldn't be built up gradually. I'm saying they're both right because they weren't evolved at all. <laughs> right, exactly. I find a lot of times there are the different camps within the evolutionary community are arguing against each other. And I've noticed you point that out in your books, Dr. Sarfati, including, I think, Refuting Evolution, where you are pointing out that they're both wrong. I think one example I use is, for instance, uh, you got the um, origin of birds that it happened from the ground, but the cursorial running theory of running dinosaurs evolving flight ordered to happen from gliders coming down from the tree, right. the arboreal theory. And both of them actually raise very uh, devastating arguments to the other side. And I think both the objections are right. Both sets are right. That birds it's... didn't evolve from dinosaurs, they didn't evolve from tree dwellers, they didn't evolve in the first place. Well, it's really, really common now, Dr. Sarfati. You you might have noticed it now, too. The evolutionists are just pretty much saying that birds are dinosaurs. Oh, yes. Is is there any validity to, to the way they just kind of assert that like it's a fact? Well, I mean, there's a lot of differences between dinosaurs and birds. You see, if you look at the hip bone of a dinosaur, there's a hollow there. They wear the three hip bones, they fuse. It's called the acetabulum. That's where the femur goes in, articulates. And in dinosaurs, uniquely, they have a hollow thing there. Well, other creatures, it's a solid, shaped like a vinegar cup. It's called the acetabulum, which means little vinegar cup in in Latin, you see, that's um, so every other thing has a solid thing there. It's a, it's a, a cup-shaped thing. Dinosaurs have a hole there. That's one big difference. Another one is that dinosaurs have their center of gravity on hind legs because they're very good runners. In fact, that's what natural selection would select for is being the best runner you have, which means you have to have the most muscle mass there. While birds have most of their muscle mass in their upper body for their flight. So you can't go from the, the, this uh, bottom heavy creature to a top heavy creature. So it's a major uh, anatomical change. And then you've got things like the feathers themselves. I mean, feathers are an incredibly well-designed thing. You've got the barb and you've got the, the, the central shaft. And you've got barbs. You've got hooks and ridges that connect it to, to make a flight surface. I mean, the feather itself is a, is a different thing. And even the lung structure is different because the – Dinosaurs presumably had a bellows-type lung, but the birds have a flow-through-through type lung where the air goes in one direction, the blood vessels go in the opposite direction. It's called counter-current exchange, very efficient, but it's a very different um, design from what reptiles had. And how do you go from one to the other? Because the intermediate stage would have to have a hole in the lung. It's called wow. a diaphragmatic hernia, and that, that would not be very good for the animal. Because natural selection can't tell you, well, in a million years, you're going to be a bird. Right. I right, deal what right. you got now. What you've got now is a diaphragmatic hernia, and you're going to die. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so there's a few things there. I mean, in fact, um, Joel Taylor and I are writing that dinosaur book we're talking about, and we've got a, uh, two chapters on the dinosaur bird issue. One oh, is on, awesome. on the general theory. The others are looking at some of the candidates they bring up. And Dr. D Brian Thomas from ICR and I wrote a, a paper on this as well, pointing out the differences. Are, are you – 
Oh, I'm sorry, doctors. Uh, I'm, saying, I mean, I'm not saying that the Bible tells you there aren't any feathered dinosaurs. I'm not saying that because the Bible doesn't tell you that much. Right. Okay, so it, there may well be a feathered dinosaur. I'm just not convinced by the usual uh, the candidates they, they put up. or uh, And I certainly don't believe that birds evolve from dinosaurs. That's not true at all. They're definitely right. separate creations. And, and you brought up so many phenomenal points. I'm, I'm glad that we actually touched on that because you, you do hear that all the time. And what you just oh, said yeah. was... Uh, was was great. It, it brings me to a, a video that you and uh, Dr. Carter released. I think it might have been a couple weeks ago that I Not recommend really everybody really watch. Um, so I, I, I like what you said there, in that the Bible doesn't really say one way or another if, if dinosaurs had feathers. But you personally, who it really sounds like you you've dug deep into this issue, you're not convinced then, uh, Dr. Sarfati, that the examples they purport really are that of feathered dinosaurs. Well, I mean, we've got some dinosaurs which which we've got got to, they're so well preserved, which shows it goes back to the the floods of reality. Some dinosaurs are so well preserved, we have the skin, and the skin has scales. We can tell what shape the scales are. Not feathers; it's quite clearly scaled skin. Right. So yeah, that's you do have them, and then you have things which uh, look are probably uh, collagen fibers, and then you find the same sort of thing on on pterosaurs and dolphins, which clearly did not have feathers. So, if we have the same things on non-feathered creatures, we shouldn't necessarily be jumping to the conclusion that there were feathers on the dinosaurs. Right. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Um, we got a, a, another quote. Well, I guess it's kind of because everybody's fascinated. I am too with your uh, chess skills and how you've um, battled it out, even blindfolded, I think. So it looks like there's a, a $5 super chat that says, has Dr. Sarfati ever played Fisher in chess? I never met sure Fisher, but I met as a, I played his opponent, Boris Spassky. I, I got a draw of Boris Spassky in 1988. Because Fisher dropped, I mean, Fisher and Spassky have this very famous match in 1972, which uh, and during the peak of the Cold War. And of course, uh, Spassky was head of the whole way to the Soviet Union behind him. And Fisher basically was treated as, as Fisher defeating the whole mass of the Soviet Union. And, and Spassky was not um, treated very well because he let the, the side down. And later on, they became good friends. I think um, Spassky became Fisher's best friend. But Fisher dropped out of chess after, after winning the title, and he came back to have a rematch against Spassky 20 years later. Uh, he won the rematch as well. That's the only time Fisher played in 72 and, uh, and 92, and then really no, seri no proper rated tournament until he died. So I never had a chance to play Fisher, but I had a chance to play Spassky. And That's I've fun. seen people like Kasparov and Karpov and, and Kramnik in person. I haven't played them, but I've seen them. That's awesome. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're definitely impressed with uh, with your chess skills. Uh, you would take me on easily, Dr. Sarfati. I'm not very good. And I guess um, before we call it a day, yeah, he uh, people in the chat are really liking your no, answer you. to dino feathers and, and dinosaurs. So I'm, I'm personally excited for that new book. I'll be the first one to pick it up. Um, time has flown by, Dr. Sarfati. I don't want to keep you any longer. You've been no, so generous. Whatever you need to do, I'll, I'll stay as long as you want, but uh, I understand that you've got things to do too, and maybe the audience does too, but I'm, I'll stay as long as you want or need me to. Well, I'll, I'll point out the fact that uh, it's been an hour and a half, and we still got 42 people in the chat with questions coming oh, in. Okay. Me personally, 
there's one question I didn't really get a chance to, to ask, and I think it would be good for the audience to hear an answer to, because I've personally enjoyed your uh, what you've had to say <clears throat> on the origin of blood types. And we know that critics, I've seen it personally, they often point to all the different blood types as a way to counter the young earth creation position. And I think more specifically, they're trying to refute uh, a scientific Adam and Eve. Can you briefly touch on that topic maybe and how to best refute it? Okay, I mean, the main blood groups are the A, B, and O. Those are the, the ones that people know, the next best known are the rhesus ones. But uh, over 20 years ago, I wrote an article about blood types and their origin, and, and I more recently followed up with uh, talking about Adam and Eve's blood type in particular. Now, I think what, what God did was create A and B. These are, are, are special things on your blood. They, they are actually um, they're antigens, so you've got some, some ability to... to had to, to respond to certain things and oh the o blood group seems to be a mutation of the a blood group has lost a certain antigen so it means uh universal donor blood is o blood you see it's o negative so it means it can be donated to anyone without actually causing a reaction uh, there's no there's nothing to cause an, an antigenic reaction like you can't give a blood to a, a, a b type person that would actually cause a fatal reaction now, if you're, a, if you're lucky enough to be A, B, any type of blood can be given to you. So I think Adam and Eve were probably created as A, B. And somewhere before the flood, uh, A was mutated and formed O. So you got some people who were A and O, so their phenotype would be A, and some were B and O. But when they married, uh, some of their kids would have been O on from both their mother's and their father's side, and therefore you got people with O-type blood. And it must have happened before the flood because O is so widespread around the world, it must have been a mutation that happened really early on. You see, blue eyes, blonde hair, that happened later. It was only found in certain groups. So I think that would have happened after Babel in a particular group of, of um, Indo-Europeans, for instance. But the O blood group is so widespread, it must have happened really early. Now, why this would happen, why mutation would be good, I can only speculate. But here's one thing I saw, is that the coronavirus seems to affect blood types in a different way. Okay. It's, I don't think it's been published yet, but they talked about uh, how the um, O blood might be less susceptible to certain attacks. In fact, we know, for instance, that some immunity to, to HIV is because uh, of a mutation that removes a receptor from the cell that the virus usually latches onto. But if, you, if, it's, if you've got the mutation removed, maybe um, the, the virus can't attack you. Maybe something that happened in the very early human populations and some sort of disease that affected the O type less than the A type. And that's how the O type became so prevalent as it is now. It's a, it's a speculation, but we're about that. I'm not speculating. O is definitely a mutation of, of A. That, that's, that's pretty much as um, accepted. It's a, it's a downhill mutation. It doesn't seem to do us any harm. Right. My blood type is O, okay, just so you know. For what's worth. My wife is, is O. So it doesn't really have any negative correlations, even though it's a mutation. Well, the thing is, that you don't choose your 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 life partner based on blood types. Oh, well, she's got such a beautiful blood type. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, reading the twenty three and me to make sure she's a good genetic match. Yeah. That'd be fun one. Great new world stuff that is. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question about um, whale evolution. That's one of their major things, right? They love to show that linear progression from mm -hmm. a land mammal 
all the way to an aquatic one. And um, that's a really popular one, I'm sure. Have you gotten that in the past? Well, yeah, okay. In my book, Refuting Evolution, my first book, which I think I wrote in 1999, uh, I think, uh, so it's over 20 years old now, I had a chapter on bird evolution, which we just discussed, and also had a chapter on whale evolution, because that was a big thing uh, back then. And so what they find is the thing like Pachycetus, well, goodness me, look at this intermediate creature they've drawn, how wonderful it is. But it's only because they found nothing below the neck at the time. They only had jaws and, uh, and teeth and skull, nothing below the neck, and they told you what this thing looked like. And when they found more of the bones, they realized it was a fast-running land creature, nothing at all like a whale. This is Pachycetus. You see, the early Pachycetus, oh, it looks like a transition form. You find more of the bones, and it's nothing like a transition form. Right. And then you put these things in a, in a nice little order. They tell you the things like the, the ambulocetus on the bottom is only a tenth of the size of the Basilosaurus up the top there. They're, they're drawn in a chart, but no hint that the Basilosaurus is ten times bigger than the things below it. Right. And there are, there are various reasons why Basilosaurus could not have evolved and how modern whales have nothing to do with Basilosaurus. They're two, two different, um, two, designed too differently, that one couldn't be the ancestor of the other. So in Refuting Evolution Chapter, I think, five, I talk about whale evolution and the fallacies. And, and just uh, even this year, they found, um, for instance, they talk about um, oh, whales have some um, bones around the hip region, but they turn out to be useful for reproduction. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So only this year, and one said, "Well, maybe we shouldn't be so uh, so uh, so keen to say something's a vestige of evolution and, and has no function. Maybe we look harder and we find function to it." Right. So this is an example of evolution being a science stopper. It actually discouraged, uh, uh, delayed finding out functions of very important things. Right, and. Uh... <laughs> Right there, such a good answer, Doctor Sarfati. Because and and I, I've read your section many times on whale evolution and uh, refuting evolution. But what you said there is, it's almost like they've now taken the vestigial argument mm. because you're, you're <clears throat> pointing out that the the whale structures are for reproductive purposes, and now they know that that's been refuted. So now they're trying to apply it to the DNA, right? With pseudo DNA, yeah, that's a big thing, yeah. Um. Here's uh, a question that came in. People are mm -hmm. loving your answer to the birds or dinosaurs. I think it's something people need to hear about. Um, I'm not 100% certain about a feathered dinosaur paper. Oh, I know what he's talking about. It's interesting, though, that this McLean feathered dinosaur paper published in the ICC was, was published after our paper. And I think, um, in fact, if you look at it, there's a comment on the, if you look at the, ta uh, the um, article that, that Dr. Thomas and I wrote, um, Feathered Dinosaur Debate, there was a comment on that article about uh, this paper, and we replied, and also my colleague, Joel Tay, who's co-author of the Dinosaur Book, but he replied, because he actually was at the ICC, he read both papers, and the problem with the, that ICC paper, it didn't address the leading creationist critics or even the leading evolutionist critics of the feathered dinosaur theory. Well, see, our paper actually addressed the best arguments from the other side. Their paper basically ignored the best arguments. I think some of my a paper, a little article of mine I wrote 20 years ago was was um, um, addressed. It was a very small article, but not the papers I've written since then, like the one with Dr. Thomas and the one I wrote with Dr. Carter in 2015. They were ignored. But a little article I wrote 20 years ago. Now, we're looking for people like Alan Fiducia, who's written a whole thing about feathered, right. uh, a whole book on feathered dinosaurs and why they don't work. That was ignored. 
which you, the leading experts in, in actual uh, fossil birth, the paleoanthropologists, no, paleoornithologists, they seem to be quite skeptical of the feathered dinosaur idea. Is is non-ornithologists who seem to be pushing the feathered dinosaur idea? Right. Well, because even now they're depicting, you know, we all know Jurassic Park and the Tyrannosaurus mm. Rex, but right. now you see depictions of Tyrannosaurus just as a big feathered dinosaur. It looks totally different than, than past interpretations. So would you say that a lot of that is inference, assumptions, and not really based on empirical science? Well, especially when I think have found mama, uh, some some impressions of Tyrannosaurus skin. I mean, I think uh, when it, the skin's quite clearly scaly, I think that's going a bit far. Right, that's a good point. So the reason why maybe they're ignoring some of those arguments is because they don't have a, a really solid rebuttal to it then. It's quite possible, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, we've actually said, well, okay, how about you find a creature that has an open uh, acetabulum, a perforate acetabulum, it's called, but also has unequivocal feathers. Find that for us. I mean, we're not saying the Bible doesn't rule those things out. We, we, we said that in our paper. I've set up with Dr. The, the video with Dr. Carter that you talked about. But find one. I mean, don't just say it's possible. Uh, uh, tell us that it actually is actual, not just possible. So that means I'm gathering that when they point to like so-called transitionals, like Archaeopteryx, Cynopteryx, maybe I'm butchering that one. Are these just true birds then, or what well, would be the Archaeopteryx is a true bird. I mean, it had uh, you see the things about about true birds they have. I mean, Archaeopteryx had a fully a full a uh, flying wing. It had flight feathers which are asymmetrical, just like flight feathers should be. It had a movable maxilla. You know, you've got a mandible, the lower jaw. The maxilla is just part of your skull, but the birds have a movable maxilla, the upper jaw as well. And the Archaeopteryx had that. So there's again the the the, the uh, head, the skull, uh, even its sensation or organs of a bird. Its flight feathers were bird. It also had a perching foot too. So yeah, you could tell from the claws that it had a perching foot. It was as a perching bird, not a feathered dinosaur. Now, Cynosauropteryx, I think, was actually a dinosaur. It had, it seemed to have a bellows type lung. It had the weight on the hindquarters, and, and the the evidence for feathers is is, is equivocal in the, in the extreme. So those are two of the main ones that we discuss in our paper, and also the book that Doctor that John Taylor and I are writing. That's all. I got to say, I'm excited for that uh, for that book. And one thing I wanted to point out too is I've got your refuting evolution book in front of me, Doctor Sarfati. I really like how you point out. I believe it's in the links are missing section mm. with bats and how bats have always been bats and the way they're designed with their echolocation systems, mm -hmm. right? Like as far back as we go in the fossil record, are bats just bats fully functioning? Yeah, but that hasn't changed. I mean. Um um, when I, by the time I wrote the Dawkins book, that hadn't changed. Uh, when I'm actually doing an update of the, of the book by design, again, it, it hasn't changed. The first bats were clearly bats, fully formed flying bats with fully formed echolocation. Just no evidence for uh, any non-bat evolving into a bat. There was a, the earliest bat is a bat. The earliest pterosaur is a pterosaur, for that matter. And, and that goes back to... 
I think the significant lack, as you point to, of transitional forms and the ones that they do point, like the exceptions, yeah. they're as you, as you do so well, they're easily refuted when you actually look, dissect like Tiktaalik, the whale evolution series mm -hmm. that you touched on, Archaeopteryx, for example, they're all easily refuted. Yeah, so, so instead of the, the see Darwin predicted innumerable um, intermediate forms, he said, why isn't the fossil record full of these intermediate forms? And he said, well, the fossil record is incomplete. But the thing is, what's the evidence for incompleteness? It doesn't have intermediate forms. You see how it's a bit, a bit, a bit circular there. It's not right. it's, the evidence for incompleteness is lack of transition forms. Uh, and we haven't got transition form because the fossil record is incomplete. So that's, that's arguing in circles. And so all they can do is, is bring up a few dubious candidates like the Archaeopteryx, like the Whale series, supposedly, maybe Human Origin series, uh, which that, that new movie dismantles, um, really does dismantle that too. Oh, and also yeah. the, the evidence, the fossil intermediates that I learned in high school no longer believed to be intermediates anymore. Yeah, I was was a human ancestor. No one believes that now. Right. Right. It, it's always changing the more they find. That movie dismantled. I watched it the second it was available. Right. Amazing. Yeah, they really dismantle, as the title, they dismantle human evolution. So then um, I believe I read it in, I think it might have been The Greatest Hoax on Earth, where you mm -hmm. point out that a lot of the so-called pre-humans would be uh, human variants. Yes, definitely. Uh, migrated after Babel, right? I believe so, and that's why the, the dismantle seems to, the, the more the more we find, the more that seems to be vindicated. Yeah, Neanderthals right. are clearly human. I think Homo erectus are clearly human. Uh, we've found more and more about those things since I wrote Refuting Evolution, um, and uh, nothing I need to change in that book. Right. And even, even the DNA that they've discussed. It's funny, whenever we have the DNA, like, for example, with Neanderthal, mm -hmm. we can see that we've interbred with them. I believe we even share genes with them. Yeah, or have their genes. I mean, that's by the biological definition of species, Doctor Sarfati. That means we are the same species, wouldn't it? And that's a real problem for for the Huros types of the world because they want to believe Neanderthals were subhuman uh, hominids right. without uh, souls. Or well, I'm not sure how you can tell from some bones whether something had a soul or not. That's something that which Huros knows. No one else can actually work it out. Um, <laughs> but also, he has to say, well, maybe humans committed bestiality if they bred with Neanderthals. Neanderthals are beasts and not humans. Human committed bestiality. That's what he says. It's ooh, pretty. Yeah, that's what he says. Yeah, but that's by definition. If we can interbreed with something, they're, they're the same kind as us, which means they're human. I'm questioning human. That's disastrous for them. I'm glad you brought that up because I've read articles where they're uh, trying to uh, fit the data in now. Because isn't it isn't it true that before we had the Neanderthal DNA or we had the evidence that shows we interbred with them, didn't reasons to believe Hugh Ross, for example, didn't they predict Neanderthals weren't human? So that's yeah, why they much. And he's still trying to bluff his way out of that. I mean, in a church. Uh, he spoke at just uh, last year. He tried to bluff his way about that, but it's so clear that he, that they uh, they had musical instruments. They made a what they called the evolutionists called a high tech superglue. They had a cosmetic industry, which means you got not only chemical know how, but also uh, a, a an advanced society that can support cosmetics. You see, if you're hunter gravity, you haven't got time to make yourself look pretty. So you got a few things that Neanderthals were clearly human. They buried their dead. Uh, which animals don't bother to do? They just uh, leave them for the carrier. They're carrying for other things to get. I mean, humans bury their dead, and Neanderthals are everything, uh, both structurally, genetically, and also um, culturally, shows they were humans. 
Right. And and right there makes it it just came to mind. That's what happens or that's what results Dr. Sarfati when you compromise the scriptures in the Bible. Mm -hmm. It You're does. Shown years later to it's it's kind of like the Big Bang almost, where a lot of your old earthers or theistic evolutionists, I find, they really like to emphasize the Big Bang as evidence for, um, you know, designer, creator, God. But it seems like there's also a lot of people in that field that are also questioning parts of the Big Bang. Oh, yeah, that's a big, that's a th uh, 33 scientists, uh, cosmologists, cosmogonists. Uh, wrote a letter to new scientists basically denouncing the Big Bang and, and hundreds more have signed on to this. So we, we, I think I mentioned that in one of my, my books or more than one. It's in our website as well. It's called Secular Scientists Blast the Big Bang. And this, uh, the subtitle is What Now for um, Compromising Apologetics? If they've based their whole apologetics on the Big Bang and the secular world rejected, what happens to them? They have to reinterpret their reinterpretation. to become <laughs> Right, uh, right. Yeah, they got to reinterpret their, their uh, reinterpretation is exactly right. Yeah, that, that's what happens when you, but as you can see here from a, a two hour uh, dialogue with you, and we've touched on so many amazing topics that holding to the correct, the straightforward interpretation of Genesis and just believing what, what Jesus um, believed and in, in taught about creation leads to um, consistency in science, even leads to testable predictions as we went over like the cold yeah. slab predictions. It's so. a very fruitful paradigm. Historically and logically, the, the biblical creation has been a very fruitful paradigm for the birth of science in the first place, and it can continue to be a fruitful paradigm if people would let it. Um, okay, well, I, I guess one final question we do mm -hmm. have here from the audience has to do with epigenetics oh, yes. and uh, let me see he says i really want to hear dr sarfati's perspective on how the discovery of epigenetics is relevant to creation versus evolution uh it's not really quite my field dr carter's really good at this i thought he's a geneticist and i'm not um, the thing is that's just uh, that's an extra layer of complexity on what they thought they had i mean they thought about dna as just having the, the protein code but now we know there's also epigenetic things like how it wraps around the histone so the epi means are um, above that it's, it's it's an extra layer of complexity so it doesn't help creation it's just an extra layer of design that evolutions have to try to explain Right, right. That, that That's a great answer. And and like you pointed out earlier, natural selection acts upon the short term. And a lot of these mechanisms, it seems like they require forward thinking. Since yeah, they're built in. Can't do it. Dawkins talks about the blind watchmaker. It hasn't got foresight by definition. Right. And um, uh, the, the questions are flying by. I mean, people are loving this. There is one that I wanted to point out, or maybe it was more so a statement about the bird. Oh, right here. So the... Um, okay, so it looks like the, okay, so I think you touched on that, that um, what they say oftentimes are feathers on dinosaurs, those bumps could just be interconnective tissues and tendons attached to the bone. Would that be the case, Dr. Sarfati? I'm not saying people are lying when they say for the dinosaurs. I didn't even say they're, they're unbiblical. I, I, but it said even on the show, uh, it's not necessarily a lie. It's not right. contrary yep. to scripture. So I'm, I'm not going as far as, as saying these guys are lies. I don't say that. I'm not saying these guys are non-creationists and they believe in the dinosaurs. I don't say that. But we're very careful uh, not to say these things and have um, disclaimers when we, we when we write these things. But but the article that um, Dr. Thomas and I co-authored, the paper in our journal, um, which is on our website now, we, we discussed the quill knob idea. And somehow you've got things which can fly that don't have quill knobs, like the 
uh, like the albatross and other things. So, so the point is that quill knobs aren't a diagnostic of feathers because they're found on something which we know didn't have feathers and uh, they're absent on things we do we know did have feathers. Right, right. That's a good point. And, and, and just like you said, exactly. You, we're not claiming that they are lying by any means. You know, a lot of them are doing their their due diligence, their honesty. The point is, is um, and, and I'm not convinced either, just like yourself, Dr. Sarfati, and I think you, you bring a, forth a lot of good objections and arguments for it. But at the same time, it wouldn't even be unbiblical because the exactly. Bible doesn't really say one way or another. Exactly, yes. Um, but I also like how you pointed out that... Um, birds could not have come from theropod-like dinosaurs anyways, based on what we know about the necessary anatomical changes, the necessary uh, novelties that would have to arise anyways in that time. Well, that's right. I mean, we have to, I think for any biblical uh, creation, we had to say, well, birds were created on day five, dinosaurs as land creatures were created day six. So birds actually predate dinosaurs, according to the Bible. By one day, they predate dinosaurs. That really has to be a, a non-negotiable. Now, what is negotiable is whether these dinosaurs had feathers. That's possibly negotiable. But the fact that birds must have predated dinosaurs is not negotiable. Whales must have predated land creatures. Right, right. And and even based on what you were talking about earlier with the dinosaur, like soft tissue, the proteins, the red blood cells, they really have no good answer for that anyways. Um, no, no, never. No, it's really hopeless. So the evidence is, is on our side there. Um, okay, one last question. I think this gentleman, uh, let me see, Anthony Maurice, um, I think he missed the abiogenesis section. I'm going to point out, uh, Tony, definitely check out the first half of this uh, stream where we touched on that because his question here, Dr. Sarfati, is, and you really dismantled Origin of Life. So, uh, Tony, definitely check it out. But he says, SFT, can you ask him how unstable RNA is? and how chemists have to babysit RNA in the lab. Uh, well, I, know we talked about uh, I, um, I mentioned in the main part that uh, three scientists who got the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2015, and it's related to the discovery of the instability of DNA, uh, which requires lots of repair machines. Because the RNA, um, see what you've got, ribose, nucleic acid, has an extra hydroxy um, group on it, and that can cause a um, self-reaction that cleave the chain. You see, so RNA is about 100 times more less stable than DNA. See, DNA is, is, is too, too unstable without repair machines. RNA is 100 times more unstable than DNA is. So the idea of, of an RNA world doesn't make any sense. And Dr. Carter told me a while back that he, he's done this sort of stuff with genetics. You can say we, we can preserve DNA if you cool it in liquid nitrogen, which is about minus 200 Celsius. It's so pretty cold. Uh, we might be able to preserve DNA. Uh, but RNA, almost you can forget about it. It's just too unstable. That's why I see DNA is our story, our genetic storage uh, material. Well, RNA does a lot of messaging from the DNA uh, to the coding things. There's a lot of RNA is being is being transcribed on DNA, but the RNA is very much a short term thing in our cell. It's not meant to last that long. It's a very short term uh, message messenger, as opposed to the information storage, which is always DNA because it's much more stable. Right. That's that. That's a great point. One other thing that I think wraps up because I'm looking through the chat and it looks like there's a lot of questions that could probably just be wrapped up. A lot mm -hmm. of the same questions and comments that could be wrapped up into one question right. that actually brings brings to mind. I believe it was your um, audience or your your question and answer with Dr. Michael Brown, where somebody brought up like distant starlight, but you pointed out that they have their own problem being the horizon problem. Yes. 
Right. Is, is that, is that solvable? Yeah, but that's, the thing about it is you can think about the big bang you got this year, this nothing exploded, became everything that's supposed to be science. And then uh, it's inevitable that you're going to have very different temperatures in the original um, fireball. You, you, but the thing is, when you look in, in the, the universe in all directions, the, the background temperature is extremely uniform, about one in a hundred thousand difference, you see. But how do you get uniform temperatures? When you start off with very different temperatures, you have to have energy going from hot stuff to cold stuff. And the fastest this can happen is the speed of light. But by the time the universe became transparent, um, the universe was 10 times too large for temperature to have equilibrated from the hot parts to the cold parts. So what they're proposing are things like the inflation idea, which said that the universe expanded much faster than light right at the beginning. That's the standard Big Bang model, which includes inflation. And other scientists, um, Joao Maguejo from Portugal, says that light was much, much faster in the past. So right. regardless whether you're a Big Banger or whether you're a creationist, you're going to have to invoke faster than light travel somewhere. Now, the exactly. evolution haven't even got any mechanism to have faster than light expansion of space to inflation, or not to have any, any mechanism to make light much faster in the past. I'd say the answer goes to Genesis, but God stretched out the expanse in day two and possibly continue the stretching out till day four when God put things in the expanse, the sun, Amen. moon, and stars. But the expanse itself uh, made on day two. And see, God is not limited by, by the speed of light because uh, speed is distance divided by time. God is a creator of space and time. Therefore, God's not limited by the speed of light. So um, he is certainly capable of expanding the rakia, the expanse faster than light. So that's sort of what the inflation model teaches. So why is it okay for the big bangers to say this and not all right for the creationists to say this? Right. Where yeah. are the the big bang with these weird and wonderful theory, but somehow when a creationist does it, we're committing scientific heresy. It's, uh, it seems like it's a, a double standard once again. Usually. And then that's where they got to pull out their storyboards. Um, it, it, it looks like we got another question, actually. I think people are just fascinated with the whole bird dinosaur topic. I'm not in, familiar with this specific paper, to be honest with you, but um, yeah, let me I see. Can't think of the I think my, our book actually talks about that because I think Alan Faduch has addressed the thing. If I remember uh, the chapter that Dole Tay and I have written that has talked about this. Just can't remember off the top of my head, that's all. Okay. Yeah. No. No. No problem. Um, well, it looks like we're going on two hours. I got to say, you you really um, were generous with giving us your time. We've had a blast. You've answered all our questions, Doctor Sarfati. Well, this is awesome. Oh, huge help. Huge. This was this was awesome. I really enjoyed well, I it. Enjoyed it uh, I had a good time too with you guys. Thanks. Yeah, we uh, we could probably talk to you all day. You know, just so much in common, and and this is such an incredibly important. Um, issue and, and topic. And it's just amazing to see how even their best arguments, which I think we covered today, have have answers, mm, you know, well, as, you as you showed. Uh, Dr. Sarfati, we, 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 we can probably find it in 10 years where we will, will have the answer. I mean, when I first joined, we didn't have the rate project. We didn't have a, the, the, the catastrophic plate tectonics was hardly uh, known then. You see, when I first started getting involved, there are a lot of things that we didn't have the answers to. Now we actually have far more answers than we did when I first started here in uh, 1996.
Well, it, it, so it's amazing based on what you said, branching off on what you said, the, we're in 2020, the more research that comes out, the more it confirms the young earth creation position. And as we talked about earlier, say on uh, chemical evolution, the more information that comes out, the more difficult it becomes for them. Mm -hmm. that would, Perfect. Well, um, before we shut it down, um, Brother Matt, if you had any final words or questions, you, I mean, I did my best to go through the chat there, given how quickly questions were flying by, but did you have any final thoughts or a final question or anything, Matt, before we? I, um, I, I remember there were questions from earlier, um, but they scrolled off and yeah. I can't go far back. <laughs> it was too bad. Uh, yeah, I was checking to see if I could see them on my phone. No, no I, I, I'm pretty sure I got all of them, and, and some that were like the same question, kind of just worded differently. Um, oh. I think we, I think we got to. So, um, Doctor Sarfati, once again, thank you so much for um, for giving us your time. I, you've been a tremendous blessing. As I said in the beginning, your your two books that I got right here, those were two of the first books I ever got when I became a young earth creationist. So they still stick with me. I want to give you the the floor for some final words, final thoughts, Doctor Sarfati, before we uh, before we close it down. Well, okay, final thoughts is uh, don't be afraid of science. Embrace proper science. Good science supports the Bible. Good science was was founded in a biblical worldview. So uh, let's embrace it and embrace the paradigm that made science possible, which is the biblical creationist worldview. And trust the Bible um, because it's God's word. Amen. Amen. Um, thank you again, Dr. Sarfati. Thank you to the audience, guys. I love that it's been a two two hours. We, we still got forty people in the chat, and it's flown by. Uh, Matt, thank you for um, co-hosting this today as well. And yeah, we're gonna shut it down for the day. Uh, God bless everybody. Thanks. SFT's out.